don't know if this has ever happened to you, but uh, I had a situation uh, in the last couple of weeks where I woke up at four o'clock in the morning. I knew something wasn't quite right. Um, I thought, oh, maybe I'm just getting old, so I had to go to the loo, you know, four in the morning. I thought, no, is that what happens when you get into your forties? Some people are nodding already. Anyway, so anyway, we've done that bit, and then so, <laughs> suddenly I realised, no, that isn't the situation. I wasn't woken up because I needed to go to the loo. Something else is going on, and what was happening is my bathroom, the the family bathroom outside of our bedroom. Um, I'd done a bit of plumbing. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, learning. Yeah, and normally I'm an all right plumber. Just want to say that out there. But anyway, something had happened. Anyway, I put new taps on. Uh, the pipe had popped, and I had full mains pressure coming pouring out into our family bathroom. And as I walked out, I could see it running across the carpet. And then downstairs, I was like, ah, let me tell you, talk about an adrenaline rush in your pants. You know, <laughs> I just got out of bed. And so you, you don't have to even imagine this, but I was running around, grabbing every towel in the house, trying to stem the water, turn the tap, yeah, turn the, the pipe off. And then, you know, Rick, Victoria wasn't even here. She was down in Edinburgh visiting, you know, a friend and family. Anyway, I, if I had left that, if I decided just to stay in bed, you know, oh, it's not that important. Bigger disaster than what had happened. Anyway, we recovered it because we acted. Listen, the passage that we're going to be opening up today is a passage where the church needs to respond. It needs to react. Passivity and doing nothing is not on. Is just not an option. Uh, some of you are great. Film buffs, I know. You like a good film. Um, as I was reading this particular passage, I had an image in my head of Indiana Jones. Now, he was my hero, you know. Still is. Come on, we love it, don't we? Raiders of the Lost Ark and all of that. Well, this image of him, just so we all know, oh, we're on the same page. Um, Last Crusade. Anyone seen that? Uh, hands up if you've seen that. that Indiana Jones and Last Okay, so we're good. So there's a bit right at the end where they're searching, you know, they're searching for the Holy Grail, aren't they? And uh, they've got the Grail, you know, and uh, there's a German lady called Elsa, who's an archaeologist as well. She's like the kind of the evil one. Anyway, she's got the Grail and she's like, Indy, I've got the Grail. And then she starts to cross this, um, what do you call it? Seal, thank you. The seal on the, the, the cavern, the sort of cave floor. And as she crosses it, Indiana's going, don't do that. You know, the ancient guard, you know, the ancient guy was saying, you can't take the grail out of here. And then she crosses the seal and the earthquake starts to happen, okay. And then suddenly the ground opens up and she falls down. But Indiana Jones gets a hold of her hand. So Elsa is hanging over this chasm, and Indiana Jones has got a hold of her, and then she turns, and there's the grail, just sitting on this ledge. Some of you are going, yeah, I remember that. Anyway, she turns, and she's like, no, Indy, Indy, I can get the grail. And it's like, you can see in her face the sort of greed, can't you? And it's like, I can get it. I can just, I can just get it. And Indiana's going, no, don't do it. I can't hold you. And she goes for it, and slips out of his hands and ooh, she goes. But in that moment, Indiana slips, doesn't he? And guess who grabs a hold of Indiana's hand? 
Sean. Sean Connery, the daddy. You know, so Indiana's father grabs a hold of Indiana's hand, and then Indiana is like, No, dad, the grail is right there. I can get it. And he looks to his dad, and then he looks at the grail, and he has that moment, doesn't he? He goes, It's like almost my precious. <laughs> ah, you see, I'm mixing my cinema. Yeah. Anyway, and then you hear Sean Connery. Indiana's dad just kind of, as he's got a hold of me, he kind of leans in and he goes, you know, junior, junior. And in that moment, Indiana has to make a decision. Am I going to go for the grail or am I going to respond and get a hold of my dad's hand? And it's just a brilliant moment where he looks him in the eye and it's like, junior. And Indiana swings out and he gets a hold of his hand. He lets the grail go and obviously the... You know, the end of the movie, they escape. Life continues. Great image I want you to kind of hang on to is that the church that we're going to be talking about today is a church that's right on the edge. It's right on the brink of falling over a precipice. And it needs to make a response. And so as we go through this, there is a moment in it, where the Father is extending a hand to the church. But the church has to respond and get hold of it. Okay, So it is, <laughs> you know, we've been talking a lot about love this morning, that God is a God of love, which He is. But He is also a God that doesn't want to see the church run into error. And it, He will come and bring a challenge, and He will bring a rebuke, because He loves us. Okay, so should we read it? It is a bit of a tough, tough passage. It is a tough kind of more. It's the toughest letter, actually, out of all of the seven that we've been looking at. So, Revelations chapter 3, uh, we're starting at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's an image, isn't it? You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. I don't know if you noticed it. There's an inside-outside thing going on here. Do you see? And an outside-inside going on. You see, the church thinks they're on the inside. And yet they're about to be spat out. Do you see that? And then also they think 
that Jesus is on the inside with them, and he's actually not. He's outside knocking on a door. Something isn't right. And so Jesus is telling, wants to kind of wake the church up and say, listen, this, you've got, you think you're okay, but actually you're, you're really not. So please listen to me. And he says that you're neither hot nor cold. And I wish you were one or the other. What's happened here is this. The church has lost its potency, its effectiveness. In fact, actually, this particular church community has become like the city in which it dwells. In fact, it's become like the water of, its, of the city. You know, Laodicea was um, probably the most influential of the cities in the Lycos Valley. It was, it was the wealthiest, it was the most self-sufficient of all of the cities in that v- valley in Turkey. The one thing it didn't have was its own decent water source. So it was built in the Lycos Valley where the river came through it. But if any of you have been to Turkey, you ever visited Ephesus, you know, we went to visit 48 degrees in the summer. I mean, that's warm, isn't it? So what used to happen was quite often the river would dry up. But the amazing thing is this. The Laodiceans, they were, they were, they were quite an ingenious crew. What they did was, there was a city about six and a half, seven miles um, further um, north uh, called Hierapolis. And some of you might have been there. If you've been to Turkey, it's now called Pampakali. And there, there was hot springs. And you might have seen adverts for Turkey where you've seen this like um, river or spring when it's all this white sort of sediment coming down the side of a mountain. Well, they were the hot springs. And so what they did was they built an aqueduct six and a half miles from Heropolis all the way into Laodicea, bringing in the hot springs. Now, further south was Coloss or Colossae. And it was a city just south just underneath the mountains. So what they did was they built another aqueduct and they brought in freezing cold water from Colossae and they piped it into the city. The problem is this. By the time the hot water got into Laodicea, it was, it was pretty much tepid and full of sediment. By the time the freezing, refreshing cold water of the mountains made it into Laodicea, and let's be honest, over six miles, you know, and it's 40 degrees plus in the summer, it's going to get warmed up, isn't it? It's going to look, it's just, yeah, from lovely and cold to now lukewarm. See, Jesus is saying to the church, you have become like the water source of the city. You've lost effect. You see, hot water is great because it cleanses, doesn't it? It cleanses and it cleans. And ice cold water from the mountain, what does it do? Oh, I'm alive. I'm awake. Oh, this is great. It refreshes. Jesus says to the church, church, you're no longer one or the other now. You're, you're not refreshing your city. You're not bringing a difference. You know, we were singing heaven come to earth, weren't we, earlier on? We're singing that your kingdom come. We were singing that. Well, actually, when you think about 
all of the descriptions in the Bible that talk about, you know, the description of the church or of the kingdom of God, it's active and it's always making a difference. In fact, it, what it does is it, it, the church or the kingdom should then make a difference into the environment in which it is. But what's happening here is the other way around. The environment is actually changing the church. To the point where he's saying, I, I don't like the taste of that. It's quite an image, isn't it? Making God gag. Wow. Listen, it was that, that image is like me half asleep and suddenly realizing <gasps> the bathroom. <laughs> the water is everywhere. In Matthew chapter 5. What does Jesus say about the activity of the kingdom of God? He says, you are the salt of the earth. I love it. You are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt challenges, but it also brings the best out, doesn't it? Salt was there to clean wounds, to preserve values. That's why he uses this. But it also salt affirms certain things and brings the best out in one another. That's, you know, so, so there are things in culture that are good. And so where there is goodness in a culture, we're called to affirm it and to bring out the best in it. And at other times, we're called to challenge it by how we live. And so there is always going to be an ethical, moral... Um, ingredient to the way we live. He goes on and he says, you're the light of the world. Don't hide your light. In fact, he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And yet what seems to be happening here is the Laodicea in church has become palatable to the world, but not so palatable to Jesus. Oh, so as I've been reading this, I've been just kind of reflecting on that and thinking, God, I don't, I don't want to be overly palatable to the world. And I certainly don't want to be impalatable to you. So is there things in me where I'm making compromises? Are we com- am I compromising? You know, compromise never happens. I don't know about how it works for you guys. But compromise in my life, or in most people's lives, and pastorally, I don't think I've really encountered many people who have made really big compromises in their life where they've gone from here and made a big jump and made it. Compromise seems to happen tiny steps, degree by degree, over a period of time. You see, the cold water was refreshing, but as it was exposed to the temperature, the 45 degrees, just got warmer, step by step, by step, by step, by step. And so Jesus is just saying, Church, you've made some compromises. We need to address it. And I think probably the reason why it's really tough on this particular church is because they are the most, they are situated to be the most influential in that area. They are the wealthiest, they've got the most resources, and they're probably the most influential. And yet they're the most 
the least effective. And so sometimes when we have the most and yet we're the least effective, Jesus is not particularly pleased. All, all the other churches are having a tough time because they're doing the right stuff. Remember we talked about Smyrna a couple of weeks ago. They were being persecuted because they were doing the right stuff. And so they felt the heat of the world. These guys aren't. There is no persecution here because they've become so powerful. Fascinating, isn't it? And so with great influence comes great responsibility. John Stott, the late, great John Stott, writer, preacher, just extraordinary man. In one of his commentaries, he says this. He said, this is the letter to the church in the West. Wow. You know, it was a church, wasn't it? This was a real church with real people, a real community, back in AD, sort of, I don't know, 65 or whatever. And yet, prophetically, it speaks possibly to the Western church because we have a lot. We've got a lot of resources. And can I just dare say, possibly, we think we know a lot. And that was the other issue. You see, this church had become proud. And pride erodes Pride makes the church lukewarm. In fact, pride actually, yeah, just dissolves the potency of the kingdom. And so, this particular church, full of self-importance and self-reliance, do we we actually read it, don't we? In verse uh, seventeen, there you have a look at that. He says, um, "You say I am rich." I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Wow, that's a statement, isn't it? Statement of self-sufficiency. We've self-built. And so what's happened is the attitude of the city has also permeated the character of this church. You know, the city of Laodicea was destroyed in AD 60 when Nero was uh, Caesar. And in fact, a huge earthquake eradicated nearly all of the, you know, the cities that we've been looking at? eradicated nearly all of them. Yeah. Emperor Nero offered help to help rebuild the cities of the Lycos Valley. Guess which city didn't want his help? Laodicea. Isn't that interesting? Others said, we need help from our divine Caesar. And so the resources of Rome were released to help rebuild these cities. Laodicea said, hey, we have lots of wealth. We have lots of stuff. We've got the knowledge. We do not need your assistance. And they rebuilt the city. Now, on one hand, that is quite remarkable. But the problem is, when the church adopts the same attitude of that, which we do not need help from our divine Caesar, then we've got a problem. Because the church is built on, not self-sufficiency, but by leaning into and onto his sufficiency. You know, the picture of Peter getting out of the boat, that I, I mean, I have preached on this I don't know how many times. That moment when Jesus comes walking on the water and he says to the guys, it's me, 
And Peter goes, if it's you, I'll come. And he's completely crazy, but he does it. And Jesus says, come, Peter. And Peter steps out of the boat and starts to walk on water towards Jesus. You see, he is completely leaning on the power of Jesus to keep him above the water in that moment. That is the picture of the church. The church that has power and presence is a church that is leaning fully on him. This church has surrendered that and become self-sufficient. And when that happens, when pride rises, guess what? When pride rises, what do we do? We rise and we put ourselves on a pedestal. And what happens to Jesus? He gets moved. He gets pushed. Pride pushes Jesus out. What is pride? What is pride? Often when we talk about pride, we think about words come to mind, arrogance, don't we? Things like that. I find it quite difficult to define pride. So I found, you know, like good painters or lots of painters do. Sometimes if, you know, you're you're painting away, not that I'm a great artist or anything, so I've been told, you know, painters, there might be an image that they want to paint. Well, instead of painting the person, that they want to paint. What they do is they paint the shadows around it to define that that's a person. So sometimes it's easier to describe pride by describing the absolute opposite. And when we describe the opposite of pride, we suddenly go, oh, now I'm beginning to understand what pride is because I know what it isn't, so it helps define what it really is. Is that helpful? So what is the opposite of pride? If this church is pushing into pride, and growing in pride, what is the absolute opposite of pride? We can be, this is not necessarily rhetorical. What do you think it is? We can have some engagement here. Humility. Isn't that right? Humility is the absolute opposite of pride. So let's think about humility for a minute. Humility speaks of what? Teachability first. If you're humble, you know you don't know it all. You know, some of you know and have met Leslie Matthews. Leslie Matthews is a great friend of ours at church. We support what they do in Sri Lanka. They're an extraordinary um, couple. You know, planted churches. They've been persecuted. They've been shot at. They've worked with refugees. They've seen the most remarkable stuff, you know, in their personal lives. You know, and, and also they've seen hundreds, if not thousands of people come to faith. They've seen Tamil tigers meet Jesus, fall down on their faces, and cry out to God for mercy. I mean, that is like, okay, these guys are proper. (laughs) If you want to meet a proper Christian, you're meeting Leslie Matthews. Do you know one thing about Leslie? And Some of you have noticed this, and we've kind of giggled about it. Everywhere he goes, he takes his iPad. Everywhere. And I mean everywhere. You know, when he's on the bus, traveling, he's got his iPad. He's always making little notes. Some of you have seen him here, you know, at City Church. You know, when somebody else is preaching, he's there, he's taking notes. At the leadership conference, he's taking notes. I've seen him where he's had his juniors and his assistants speaking and even having conversations with teenagers and suddenly he gets his iPad out he's made a note. I'm like, what are you doing? He says, always room to learn. Been in ministry 35, 40 years, planted churches. This is a guy, he's tiny. There's nothing to him. He's in his mid-60s and his diary is like busier than most people I know. He's just like, 
If he was here today, he'd be sat there. You wouldn't even know. He'd be there taking notes. Because he wants, he's humble, and he's always willing, wanting to know more. Always teachable. Humility is teachable. Never says, I already know it. This particular church, Nick thought he knew it. Anyway, so that's part of it is teachability. Quick to serve. If you're humble, you're quick to serve, aren't you? You're like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I don't mind. There's no job I don't mind doing. I'll put the chairs out. I'll make the teas and coffees. I'll go over and do that. That's what humility looks like. Humility prefers others. It just does. In just about any context. It's sacrificial. Humility produces transparency. Notice that. The most humble people I know are the least guarded and they're open. Because you see, pride hides stuff. Hides stuff. Why? Because we don't want to look silly. Actually, we don't want to look weak. So we put the mask on. Don't we? We're going to be we're going to project a different persona. Humility does the absolute reverse. Makes us more transparent. Makes us actually humility makes us courageous in our vulnerability. You see what we're doing? We're painting the shadow, right, to see what pride actually is. And as I go through that and I start to think about that, am I a sacrificial person? Do I prefer others? Am I? Do I sit in those moments and go, I'm not really teachable? You know, I know that already. You see what I mean? And there probably is some stuff in me where pride rises. I don't want it to. Because it pushes him out. What an image that Jesus is stood outside the church community. Often this passage is used in an evangelistic context. And I've used it many times. Behold, I stand at the door on the, and knock. I'm knocking on the, on the door of your heart. And I want to come in. I want, I want to put things right. I love you. Come and receive my love. Come and become a Christian. But that's a wrong use of that passage. Even though we kind of do use it. It's saying, I'm outside the church. The creator of the universe. Look at the description of this. The Amen, faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, is knocking on the door of his own church, saying, guys, I want to be in. You're pushing me out. I want in. I don't want you to let go. But if you continue. Wow, so what does the church look like without the head? Well, just have a quick look around, people. You might be really good looking, but I can guarantee this. Without Jesus, the head of this deal, we would be in a really big mess. Wouldn't we? Jesus is knocking on the door of his own church. And so it seems like this church has transferred their trust from the head and his resources to their heads and their wallets or their resources. They become self-sufficient. And as a result, they're actually not much caught 
they're not being very effective. But, with the strongest rebuke in this passage, comes also the strongest promise. You see that picture of Jesus outside knocking? It's also a picture of hope and a picture of a promise. The wonderful thing is this. Jesus is true to his nature. And he's true to his, his own. I don't want to go anywhere. You've put me out. I want in because I love you. And so actually the knock is not just a condemn. It's not a condemning knock. It's actually a knock of hope and promise. I want in. Let me in. I love you. I don't know how you hear the knock, but I hear a very loving knock. When a dad knocks on his son's or daughter's door because he wants them not to go in error, it's like, I, please, open the door. And so the knock is one of promise if you respond. Can you see it? In that knock, there's Sean Connery's hand reach, reaching out to his, to his son. Junior, take a hold of my hand. That's the moment. And we need to respond. See, verse 19 is so important. Those I love, I will rebuke and discipline. I love you, so I will challenge where you're at. Because you're my child. So we need to decide. But here's the thing. Anyone who hears my voice. You see, this is a letter to the whole church. But the response is an individual response. Isn't that interesting? I don't, I don't know about how it works for you guys, but I have heard many words in church, and they're for the church. And I sat there and went, oh, it's for the church. It's not for me. You know, there's a classic moment. Um, where Jesus is preaching to the crowds. I think it's in Luke chapter 4. It says, and Jesus taught the crowds, and Peter, he's just sat in his own boat, because Jesus is borrowed his boat. Peter's just sitting there, listening, or cleaning his nets, or whatever. And it says, and Jesus is teaching the crowds, and then it says, and then he says to Peter, go and put out into deep. You see, sometimes we abdicate responsibility. And we hear that it is a letter to the entire church to respond. But actually, the angel you know, comes and says, He who has an ear, let him hear. And so the word is to the church, but the response is an individual response. We need to get up. And the response is this, to run to the door and to let him in. See, the Lord of all creation... He's knocking on the door. He's not smashing the door in. What I see in this passage is, again, true to God's nature. If there was no choice, then there's no love. Because love always creates a choice. Isn't that interesting? And so here we have a moment. I love you, but you need to respond. I'm not going to make the decision for you. Please. Please, please respond. And so finally then, if we respond, three things he promises. See, Laodicea was known for its wealth. It was like the banking capital of the area. 
he says, if you come to me and buy gold, yeah, he's linking it. It was also known for its black wool industry, textile industry, thriving. He says, if you come to me, you'll get gold. You'll get white robes instead of black ones. This is how he's doing it. It's brilliant, isn't it? And then what was the final one? Eyes. There was a budding medical um, university in Laodicea, and their speciality was this ointment that you put on people's eyes to fight infection. Isn't that incredible? If you come to me, listen, you're going to start banking, not in this world, but you'll bank on me, and I always come good. Isn't that brilliant? You've been dressed in black, but you come to me, you no longer need to cover your shame. White robes, forgiveness, eternal love. And you know what? Because your pride, pride skews perspective on life, who you are, how you see the world, and how you see me. Your perspective needs to change. You need to get that eye salve, just to get it on your eyes. Actually, I'm going to provide that. Now, I'm going to touch your eyes and give you a whole new way of looking at the world. Isn't that brilliant? Listen, this is what Jesus is offering all of us. A new perspective. The riches of his resources. So that we become effective as Christians in that community. Jesus then applauds that. So how do we hear the knocking? It's one of promise. I understand. 